more or less on time because I know it's a, a long day. I come to Hebrews chapter 7 and I think if you'd like to come to page 33 on your notes um, I think I've, I've said most of those notes but I've been careful to write it down uh, just on page 33 and halfway down the page there's this little paragraph here he arose to become the high priest on his throne now I've said this many times before but maybe I just need to repeat it that during his earthly life as he was fulfilling the role of the last Adam and by his perfect obedience he brought the kingdom back to earth he was the first man if you like to be the manifestation of the kingdom he lived the way that Adam should have lived and he lived in perfect obedience to the Father he lived in total dependence upon the Father the eternal life of the Father flowed through him without restriction and all the power and all the authority he had on earth was the outflow of obedient humanity okay that's the way the first Adam could have lived but he chose not to and he had power on earth to deal with anything and everything demonic he had power on earth to forgive sins and you'll notice in the Gospels this phrase comes quite frequently the Son of Man has power on earth but during that three and a half years of ministry he had not yet because no man had ever yet earned the right to be raised to the throne and have all things under his feet that had not happened the first man Adam by his disobedience lost his inheritance and the last Adam was now paying the penalty for that disobedience because now there was already established an alternative kingdom on earth that kingdom would not have been there if Adam had not disobeyed so it wasn't it wasn't back to the level playing field because now there was a highly organized and powerfully resistant kingdom of darkness which had been established because of Adam's disobedience but by the obedience of Jesus he was now beginning to dismantle it and he certainly had authority to deal with anything on earth but as we've seen a number of times already the real sphere of power over the earth is in the heavenlies and we read the Apostle Paul that we're wrestling with principalities and powers in heavenly places they, that's where they are they, they, they sit in, in heavenly gates exercising dark demonic influence upon our physical cities Abraham saw very clearly that in order to take possession of the earth he had to take possession of the heavenly land we read that in Hebrew, we'll look at it later on in Hebrews 11 and so it's a battle of the heavenlies that's why for three and a half years although Jesus did amazing miracles powerful miracles took place he taught and preached the most incredible teaching obviously and he lived the flawless sinless life of God manifested through his flesh and yet the strange and terrifying thing is that the city of Jerusalem got more and more hard against him he got maybe 20, 40,000 people to come to his healing meetings but that didn't change their lives it didn't change their disobedience and didn't change their lost state but he, he pulled out of that 
crowd of, of peripheral, because these same people that were healed were also the people that cried for his crucifixion. Basically, I mean, give or take a few thousand here or there, it was the same crowd. So he hadn't changed them, and the temple got worse, not better. In the beginning of his ministry, it was a house of merchandise. At the end of his ministry, it's called a den of thieves. So when religion resists the spirit, it gets worse, it doesn't get better. Hello. And that's true of any religion, whether it's a, a Christian denomination or whatever it is. If it resists the spirit, it goes downhill rapidly and becomes increasingly evil. And that's happening to some denominations right now. And they're, they're far worse now than they were before the Spirit began to come back to his church. Because they're resisting the Holy Spirit. Now, in that crowd, Jesus had 120 people who really were prepared to be his disciples. Because that's how many gathered in the upper room at his, uh, at his commandment. So you could say he had a committed church of about 120. He had about 500 who called themselves his disciples because he appeared to them after his resurrection. So he had maybe 500 attendees, but 120 who formed the committed core of his church. With all that incredible teaching, all those amazing miracles, and living that incredible life, it didn't touch the city. And if you look at that soberly, after three and a half years, Jesus really wasn't doing any better than many of you guys are doing. And the reason was because he had not yet received power and authority in heaven. He only had authority on earth. And that could only be accomplished by his resurrection. So all those three and a half years on earth, he was, he was ministering under the handicap of demonic principalities and powers, ruling the demonic darkness from the heavenlies, and he did not yet have authority to take them down. And when you begin to see that, you realize how, how important it is for us to learn that lesson and say, well, if Jesus couldn't move his city without moving the principalities and powers, what chance do we have in our cities? And so at the end of three and a half years, 120 people were committed to him. Tens of thousands might attend his healing meetings, but they were the same people that would be prepared to crucify him if the political wind changed. Hello. But once he was risen from the dead, he appears to his disciples and makes this statement from then on, all power in heaven and on earth is now given to me. In other words, the risen, ascended Christ had a totally different authority. He had authority in the heavens as well as authority on earth. And I believe that the moment he was risen and during that period when he was appearing to them and talking to them about the kingdom of God. But that was his main theme all those 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. He was concerned to get his disciples into the revelation of the kingdom. They still saw it in terms of returning a Davidic-type kingdom to Israel. And, and you can almost shake it and say, look, no, it's bigger than that. I'm not interested in restoring a, a physical kingdom to Israel, I'm now on the stage, bringing the kingdom to the whole earth. It's a new nation of every and any person who will come and fulfill that condition of obedience so as to become part of Melchizedek. He says in Matthew 21 uh, verse 43, he said, he said to, the, to the ethnic Jews, the kingdom is taken from you 
and given to a nation that will bear the fruits thereof. And of course the primary fruit of the kingdom is obedience. Would you not agree with that? That's the pri- it comes again and again and again and again and again and again. And so Peter now talks about gathering from every kindred and tribe and nation you know, a royal priesthood. Now, as you go back to Exodus 19, where they had the opportunity, you will be a kingdom of priests, uh, 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 you will be a kingdom of, of priests unto your kingdom of... of you will be... Uh, I've forgotten the exact phrase now. <laughs> it's just going to my mind. You will be a kingdom and a priesthood unto your God. Now, Peter picks up those same words and applies it to the church, which is, of course, the new kingdom. And it's the new nation. And of course, the Jews are going to be gathered in and have a significant part in that nation. But they will not have a separate entity and they will not have a separate purpose. Their only future is in the kingdom. Amen? That's why this is being written to, he- to Hebraic believers who, who maybe some of them are still looking for the kingdom to come to Israel. They said, no, no, that's never going to happen. But you can become part of the kingdom and have a glorious part because of your rich heritage and your, your generations of soaking in the word you should have a better understanding and you should, be, you should be better teachers of the kingdom providing you leave your Jewish restrictions behind and coming to the fullness of the Melchizedek priesthood now here in Hebrews 7 it deals with all these things in a particularly powerful once we've established the law of hereditary once we've established the power of the risen Christ Once Jesus was risen from the dead, he's no longer saving Adamic race through his Jewish um, ethnicity. That's over at the cross. Does that make sense to you? Salvation in that sense is of the Jews because it was a Jew who died for all of Adam's race. Amen? So salvation is of the Jews, which is what he said. But the risen ascended Melchizedek priesthood isn't Jewish, it's without genealogy. Amen? And it doesn't have authority on earth only, it has all power in heaven and on earth, not only in this age but also in the one to come. It's a totally different ballgame. And so he, he was concerned in those 40 years I'm sorry, in those 40 days, I meant to say, in those 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, he was concerned to get this into his disciples. You go into all the world and preach the gospel. I made you witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Now stop looking at ethnic Israel, stop looking at that little piece of land called the Holy Land, because now we've entered into the heavenly realm, the whole world has become our inheritance. And we're now going to be world takers. Amen? Now to demonstrate the new power of the risen ascended Christ and the power of the Melchizedek priesthood, we have to see what happened to Jerusalem. Because that was the first place, if you like, heavenly Jerusalem began to be built by that first group of disciples. They built heavenly Jerusalem, if you like, that upper room turned into the, if you like, the tabernacle of Davy, which was prophesied by Amos. It became the powerhouse from which things began to shake and change. And as a result, the demonic principalities came tumbling down, so that when Peter went out into the same city and preached on the day of Pentecost, 
3,000 people turned to the Lord, which was more than 20 times all that Jesus had reaped in his whole three and a half years of ministry. Now, was that because Peter's a better preacher than Jesus? No, it's because the whole climate had changed in the heavenlies, because now the kingdom had come, now the priesthood had been established, now heavenly Jerusalem was being built, now, if you like, spiritual tabernacle had been opened and Zion was now becoming the strong scepter out from which rule and government was now first of all affecting Jerusalem. A lame man was, was raised up and began leaping and praising God and the whole city went crazy. When Lazarus was healed they plotted how they might kill him. No one turned to the Lord because of the demonic cloud of darkness holding people's minds, they were not free to respond even to the visible evidence of the power of God coming through Jesus. But when the lame man was raised and began leaping and praising God, the whole city went crazy. 5,000 people turned to the Lord. We know from history that within two years of the day of Pentecost, one third of the city of Jerusalem had turned to Christ and the church was now 20,000 people. Now what the difference was because now the Melchizedek priesthood had come, the heavenly tabernacle had been established, and from the power of that priesthood, of whom Jesus was, of course, its glorious head, a strong scepter was now going out, which was subduing all the enemies of God, and the city of Jerusalem was the first, if you like, beneficiary of this new priesthood. Two years, 20,000 people turned to the Lord. But the, while the, if you like, the spirits ruling over the religious city of Jerusalem were thrown down, the spirits ruling over the Roman Empire were shaken, but they were not yet defeated. And there was a battle that went on, and we, we could talk about the various uh, ebb and flow of that battle, but it culminated, of course, into the final battles over the city of Ephesus and the downthrow of those Roman See, the political spirits seem to have even more power than the religious spirits do. And, and I'm not going to go into that right now, but I just want us to see, you know, what happens when that priesthood is raised. We're going to look at it a little bit further on, but let's just get this picture here. Now, that's what the writer to the Hebrews is, is getting them to see, this, this glorious priesthood. And I want us just now to go into the second part of this, chapter 7, and we'll just finish at the end of chapter 7. And we're going to come in at verse 11. Having recognized this glorious priesthood, it says, therefore, so once we get a therefore, we're saying, what's it therefore? Because of what we've just been told. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek? It was if the Levitical priesthood was doing its job, why do we need another one? And that is because it wasn't doing its job. It wasn't accomplishing anything except providing people with a lot of religious activity that didn't change anybody's lives. For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. So now we're beginning to dismantle everything which was established under Moses for the temporary provision for the people who wanted the blessings of God without the presence of God. Those days are now over. 
So first the priesthood goes, now the law goes. Hello? And you'll find if you not only read here, but read in the writings of Paul, there isn't anything that's left of this whole great religious edifice. And I wonder why today everybody's so desperately trying to re-establish it. Amen? Now this is being written by a very, very uh, uh, educated, informed, spirit-filled, prophetic, all-seeing Jew, and he's writing to Jews. Now, if this applies to Jews, it surely must much more apply to Gentiles. If he's saying to Jews, you've got to leave the law behind, you've got to leave the Levitical priesthood behind, because that's all made obsolete by the manifestation of Melchizedek. Because there's no power in these things. They were shadows which gave a measure of understanding of the reality when it came. Because, of course, when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, a well-practiced Jew would at least understand what he was talking about. Ought to understand, but it's amazing how few of them did understand. Although they'd killed a Passover lamb ceremonially all their lives and their fathers had done and their grandfathers had done, they still didn't understand what John was saying. So let's just read on. For the priesthood being changed, verse 12, of necessity there's also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe for which no man had officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And, yet, and it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of fleshy commandment but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Maybe you've already noticed already, but have you noticed how frequently the writer to the Hebrews is quoting the Psalms all the time? There's so many key Psalms, which we only looked at a few of them, and the reason is because David had all this revelation as he was living as a New Covenant believer, living in the Melchizedek priesthood a thousand years before, of course, it ever became evident in the church. But he'd seen it all, wrote it all, and had an incredible comprehension of what it was all about. And in order to enter into the Melchizedek priesthood and live in that New Covenant, David had to abandon everything concerning the law. He had to be put into a separate place altogether in Moses' tabernacle, and David never went there, and those from Moses' tabernacle never came to David's tabernacle. There was a complete dichotomy of the two, all those 33 years in which it stood. And we, we cannot and we should not try and mix the two today. Amen? I love the Jews so much, I don't want them to have a restored Judaism. I want them to come into the fullness of the kingdom. I don't want them to be cheated of their inheritance, which is a thousand times more than the physical things which so many people are, are fighting desperately that they might have. It's not, what is it, something like 
8,000 square miles, I think is the promised land. But God's given, given them as part of the kingdom, the whole earth. Amen? You see, we're told in Scripture that the day's coming when this present world, including physical Jerusalem, including physical Israel, it's going to be burnt. So why put all your eggs in that basket when it's going to be destroyed? It'll be destroyed along with the rest of the world. It won't, it won't, it won't continue. But a glorious new heavenly Jerusalem which is already existing in the heavenlies, that will come down out of heaven and become in some way physically magnificently manifested. And, it's, and if you measure it, it's about 1,500 miles cube. And I, I got a globe and I, I made a, a sort of scale model of heavenly Jerusalem. And if you stick it on Israel, it goes all the way over into Iraq and Iran, into Greece, halfway down into Africa. There's no room for it. <laughs> I don't know if it's literally physical, but I thought, let's just have a look to see what it looks like. Amen. So we say in page 33, there's now a change to a new, better priesthood, to a new, better covenant, with a necessary change of law. Okay? For it is evident that our Lord, um, sorry, come down to verse 17. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment. Amen. So what does that say? The commandments of the law are annulled. Is that what it says? Because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Under the old covenant, you kept your distance from God. You got the benefits without the presence. The purpose of this covenant is to bring you into God's presence without being burned, but just seeing him in all his glory, face to face, and still living there. It's the restoration, if you like, of his presence. And insomuch as he was not made priest without an oath, that they... That they have become priests with, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. He won't change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. But so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. So there's a new covenant. There's, there's a total annulling of the law there's a new priesthood can you see how everything's now changed amen also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing but he because he continues forever has become an unchangeable priesthood therefore he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them See, that's, that's one of the great things he does. He makes intercession for us. And the purpose is to bring us into this whole glorious reality. He's able to save to the uttermost. And that, that phrase, to the uttermost, it means the uttermost lengths of distance and the uttermost extremities of time. There's no one, however messed up they are, that cannot be totally and gloriously saved. Such is the power of his priesthood. 
And again, I guess the Apostle Paul is a very good example of what that priesthood can do. Amen? And do you think Jesus was praying for him? I bet he was. Amen. For such a high priest is fitting for us. You see, if you had a priest who was committing sin and failure and was having to go and make atonement for himself before he could minister to you, that's no good to us. Because that's not the way we're going to live. So we couldn't have a high priest that couldn't live up to our standard. Amen? But such a high priest becomes us. Because what he is, is where he's taking us. 1 John chapter, chapter 4 and verse 16, it says, Brethren, we know and we believe the love that God has for us. And it goes on to say, I think it's verse 17 or 18, it says, For as he is, so are we in this world. Isn't that incredible? Amen. So we've got to have high priest who's appropriate for a people who are not prisoners of sin, who are not prisoners of bondage, who are not walking or living in the flesh, but they are, if you like, an outflow of the very power of that glorious risen, ascended life. Such a high priest becomes us. He's fitting for us. He's holy. He's innocent, is a better translation, not harmless. He's, he's, pretty, he's pretty dangerous, I tell you, especially to demons. He's holy, he's innocent, he's, he's undefiled, he's separated from sinners and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's, for he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which comes after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Hallelujah. Then we'll just note this and then we're going to bring it to a close. Now this is the main point of all we're saying. This is the main point of all we're saying. And the tragedy is that when you use the word Melchizedek to the average evangelical Christian, he thinks you're speaking in tongues. <laughs> you say, Melchizedek was good, all these guys speaking in tongues. They don't even know what it is or what it's all about. Isn't that tragic? This is the chief point. This is the main point of all we have to say. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He's a ministry of, this, of the sanctuary, or if literally, he's a ministry of the holies. That's the Greek word. He's a minister of the holies. His normal, natural place of abiding is in the holiest of all, in total, unveiled, unclouded fellowship with his glorious Father. He says, now come on you guys, I've been through all that I've been through to get you here. Don't stop halfway. Don't live in some other semi-saved, half 
related situation. Come on, here am I in the blazing glory of my Father's presence. I've opened up the, ho the Holy of Holies for you and you in me can come and live there. And be the, the, the power and the authority that I need to work through to be the strong scepter, to be the government, to be this mighty, powerful, warring, ruling Melchizedek priesthood. So I can now subdue every enemy all over the face of every demonic power that's, that's, that's penetrated God's glorious creation because of the sin of Adam. We're going to cast them all out. We're going to cleanse the whole place and we're going to bring in the glory of what God intended. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He is a ministry of the holies and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, therefore it's necessary that this one also had something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not even be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve after the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. There it's clearly said for us, all that shadow, it's all a copy. Why live in the counterfeit or the copy when you can live in the reality? It's just to help you, or to help temporarily, those who could get a picture of where we were going before the veil was open, but now it's open. And so we're going to look at this tomorrow and we're going to see you know, how now we've got there and say, okay, that's where we're going. These are the steps we've got to go through. You start with chapter 2, we're dealing with sin. Chapter 4, you deal with the flesh. Chapter 5, you wash your ears out and get, repent of your disobedience and become as obedient as Jesus. Can you see all these steps are here? that you have to be obedient like he was. Chapter 6, you don't live in the, the, uh, the temporary, incomplete shadows of the Christ. You come into the reality which they vaguely represented and to which they dimly pointed. Chapter 7, you, you, with your spirit, you receive the ununderstandable fact that before God created the world before time even came into existence God so loved you as an individual that he already designed you we need to comprehend that we are all eternal spiritual beings who are having a temporary physical experience but our real destiny and our real purpose is that spiritual being which we eternally are. And God designed you to make you uniquely different to everybody else and placed you in the loins of Christ so that in a moment of time the truth would dawn on you, you would grab that fact by faith and there would become a manifestation of what he declared you to be before there was even the beginning of time. Now don't try and understand it, just let your spirit feed on that.
We were in him. That's what it says, before the foundation of the world. Isn't that a strange thing to say? But he was crucified before the foundation of the world. He chose you in him before the foundation of the world. That's what it says in Ephesians. There you were in him, in his loins, as part of that company of people who would respond. Before he created the world, it was already decided that you were part of the Melchizedek priesthood. So let's stop doubting, let's start believing. And let's get in to the practical, practicality of it so that he can use us as this powerful manifestation of the Melchizedek priesthood to, to, to join with him in this joyful ministry of crushing every demon under our feet to his glory. Amen. Until every enemy has made a footstool for his feet. That's what we're called to. And we're going to look at that tomorrow to see how this now works out in all the practicalities. Amen. So we're going to stop here today and uh, we will I recommend that you get a rest this afternoon and then we can come fresh vigorous because tonight we're going to start doing some Melchizedek warfare we're going to start exercising our throne room authority in Jesus name Amen God bless you have a great afternoon